Well, if you'll take your Bible and open it with me to the book of First Timothy. Chapter 6. First Timothy chapter 6. And I'll begin reading partway through verse 15. And I'll read all the way through verse 16. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. In a work entitled, The Idea of the Holy, German Lutheran theologian Rudolf Otto said these words, and I'm going to quote him here. He said, It is not easy to discuss questions of religious psychology with one who can recollect the emotions of his adolescence, the discomforts of indigestion, or say social feelings, but cannot recall any intrinsically religious feelings. Now this sentiment stands as an overarching truth with regard to all of the attributes of God, but especially tonight, I think this is even more true, if you can more readily have a conversation or discuss memories of your childhood, the ups and downs of your ever-changing health, the weather or your work week, or the latest news to come across your news feed, then you can, the regular working of God in your heart, within your own personal experience with Him on a daily basis then this lecture is probably going to be for you little more than mystical gobbledygook. In other words, and I'll shorten it, if you've had no real experience with God, then what I'm about to attempt to describe will be lost. It'll be confusing. My prayer is that hopefully it'll at least stir up a hunger I don't know that what I'm about to describe is, is necessarily to be the experience of every believer. Like the Pentecostals would say, every believer, the evidence of the fruit of your salvation is that you speak in tongues. Well, I don't believe that's true. And I don't believe evidence of salvation is going to be the same experience with God across the board, but... Again, if what I'm about to describe to you is not, has not been your experience, then you need to know from the outset that by the end of it, you may not be any more helped. And so what I want to do is open with a word of prayer, and let's ask for God's blessing on our time 
and that he would uh, perhaps in a small measure show us his glory. So let's pray. Father, we again, like earlier, are desperate and perhaps even more so when we begin to imagine that we are about to set out on a journey to try to understand something no man has ever seen or can see. And we're here driven to the end of our intellectual and mental road, and we're, we're left with only revelation. God, we, we have your word here, and now the job is to unpack it, and, and we are hoping or praying that your Holy Spirit will come and help us to understand Impress these things upon our hearts. Stir our affections that we might long to understand our God. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So the confessional language that we're going to look at this evening, I, I want to read to you the entirety of the first paragraph of this second chapter again all the way up until this point. Perhaps as I read through these phrases and words, this will jar a little bit of recap in your mind of what we've studied. But we believe the Lord our God is but one only living and true God, whose subsistence is in and of Himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but Himself, a most pure spirit, Invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only hath immortality. And then here's the confessional language that I'm going to try to open up tonight. Dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto. Dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, or in the language of 1 Timothy 6.16, who dwells in unapproachable light. I'm going to try to say that as many times as I can because I want you to perhaps picture, at least think, imagine, feel, ponder something when you hear those words that our God dwells in light which no man can approach unto. Now we're still addressing God's attributes, and so what I have to do here is take this phrase and sort of come up with an attribute or a, a title that might make it more easily understood. And so I've loosely stolen a phrase from Burkhoff and his systematic theology, although this is not his exact phrase, but when I read his phrase and I read what I'm thinking, it sounds like he's describing what I'm thinking. And so the phrase, uh, theological language that I've put on this trait is the majestic holiness of God. The majestic holiness of God. Now we will in the weeks to come, look at the phrase most holy. And there we'll look at something different than the majestic holiness of God. There we'll look at the moral holiness of God. Now usually, when we use the term holy, in our minds, what we immediately think of is God's moral holiness. 
That is God's separation from sin. But here, I want to address God's majestic holiness, which is not just His separation from sin. It is God's separation from everything, not God. As the one, quoting from Isaiah 50, 17, whose name is holy... It is of the very essence of God to be separated from His creation by the infinite chasm that spans creature lowliness from creator exaltedness. God is not first morally holy. He is first essentially holy. He is first separated in who He is and what He is from what we are and who we are. Now from that we will derive His moral holiness. He's... he's separated from our sin. But here we're, we're not talking just about sin. We're talking about the, the being of God as unlike our being. Now why do I call this the majestic holiness of God? And, I, and I'm going to stick close to my notes tonight. I've not uh, mastered this subject, nor do I think I will ever. But this is the first time I've ever taught on this. And so bear with me. Why am I using this phrase, the majestic holiness of God? Where do I get majestic holiness from the phrase, dwelling in light which no man can approach unto, or who dwells in unapproachable light? Well, then let's jump out of order here and go straight back to our text. First, there is this primary text, 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 16, which we opened up a little last week, and here we're opening up again, who alone hath immortality, speaking of the Lord, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So there we have our phrase explicitly stated. Of course, the confession is going to use the uh, Elizabethan translation or, or Elizabethan English, but here in the English, who dwells in unapproachable light. And you'll remember that what Paul's doing here is he is, he's ran off into a doxology of praise. And here, one of the attributes that he names, he is the blessed and only sovereign. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He only has immortality and he dwells in unapproachable light. In other words, Paul is saying God finds his habitation in light that to us is unapproachable. I'll read a quote here from Patrick Fairbairn. He comments here. And, and again, I'm, I'm doing all this so that you can at least get some thought in your mind. He says, God is dwelling in an atmosphere of light. Light. That from its excessive splendor and intense brilliancy is incapable of being approached or looked upon by the eye of man. Now we know God can't be contained to a place. And so we're not saying that there's somewhere in the universe where there's a light. And if you go to the light and peek down into it, well, there's God hunkered down in the light. There has to be, I believe, there has to be more to this phrase than just telling us where God lives. I think Paul is describing the nature of God. 
He dwells in unapproachable light. Now, to, to support that, I'll give you another support text from Psalm 104, verses 1 and 2. And you can turn there. Psalm 104, verses 1 and 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor. Remember these words, splendor and majesty. Verse 2, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. So here again, like Paul, the, the psalmist is, is just elaborating on the, the greatness of God. You are very great. And then he elaborates, clothed with splendor, majesty, covering yourself with light. Here, light is like a garment. And God is, as it were, wrapped in the garment of light. Again, we can't take this literally. There's, this is obviously... Um, an anthropomorphism describing God using the characteristics of a man and, and natural things. Now, to understand what's being said in these passages, we need to understand what the Bible uh, means when it uses this idea of light. Because there's something behind it here. Darkness, we read in Scripture, has reference to evil, to demons or Satan and their power, their authority, it has reference to ignorance of the mind, having their, their foolish hearts darkened. That would be the, the, the whole inner man darkened. Confusion of the heart is referenced using this idea of darkness. Darkness is also used to describe blindness of the eyes, but also spiritual blindness. And darkness is used to describe death. And so, the opposite of that is light. In the Scriptures, light is used to describe goodness and righteousness, spiritual illumination and understanding, wisdom, clarity and resolution, physical sight, and life. In Him was the light, and the light was the life of men. And you'll see many, many times, light and life go right together. And here, light is being used to describe the nature of God. He dwells in unapproachable light. When Moses met with God, when he left, his face would shine because he had been with God. His face would literally put forth beams of light. When Paul met with Christ on the road to Damascus, he saw a great light from heaven which he described as brighter than the sun. And there's another place that I think gives us a little information about what's happening here, perhaps supports all of this, and this, that would be the transfiguration of our Lord. In Matthew chapter 17 and verse 2, this is the way Matthew writes it, He was transfigured before them, and His face shone like the sun, and His clothes became white 
as light. In Mark chapter 9, verse 3, it says, His clothes became radiant. You know, radiant means to show off, to put forth. Radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And Luke says, As he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And so in that moment where the incarnate Son is is displayed in, in what appears to be all of the fullness of His divine glory, as much as it could be shown in human flesh. Similar to Saul's experience on the road to Damascus, he's described as dazzling white like the sun, radiant white as light. Again, we, we can't, we, we struggle to picture it. But listen to how Peter, who was there, describes it later. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16, he says, But we were eyewitnesses to His majesty. His majesty. Now, the word majesty carries with it the following ideas. Greatness. Bigness. Dignity. Honor. Power. Grandeur, nobility, regality, royalty. Peter says, when we saw Christ transfigured, he shined bright, white, brighter than the sun. If you stared directly at it, his face was his changed, his clothes were shining, and what we saw was his majesty. It was all of His greatness, all of His bigness, all of His honor and dignity, all of His power and grandeur, all of His nobility and regality. It was all of it. And when all of that was made visible to the natural eyes of men, as it was still even cloaked in the human flesh of our Lord, all they could see was blinding white light. God dwells in unapproachable Light. God covers Himself with light as with a garment. God finds His habitation in the midst of light. That is, all of His greatness, all of His bigness, all of His honor, all of His dignity, all of His power and grandeur, all of His nobility and regality and royalty, all of that... And we would look at that and we say, that's His majesty. He is majestic because of that. And there's always something about this idea of majesty. If you think of your majesty, you're talking to the king or the queen. There's always this idea that is of, of majesty that it is forbidding. There's always the element of apprehensiveness to approach the majesty. There's always the immediate realization that this majestic one is unlike me and I am unlike him. We're separate and I shouldn't be here. And that's why I'm calling this the majestic shining, radiant, greatness, bigness, honor, glorious separation and holiness of God, the majestic holiness of God. Now let me 
define that a, a little more explicitly. And I'll give you a definition. Again, I didn't, this is all me, so if it's wrong, it's wrong. It's not from a book. But here's how I'm defining this. The majestic holiness of God is the expulsive nature of the absolute, unmixed glory of God as it is manifested in the presence of creatures. The expulsive nature of the absolute, unmixed glory of God as it is manifested in the presence of creatures. Or if you wanted to put a really short definition, you could put it is his terrifying otherliness as it is manifested in the presence of creatures. Now, why do I say creatures and not just men? Because in the light, in the, in the presence of this majestic holiness, even the holy angels cover their faces. They don't look at God. I believe this is the same idea that is conveyed when it says that someday earth and sky will run from the presence of God. They will want to be away from Him in His majestic holiness because He is unlike creature. Now let me exposit exegete my definition there. It's expulsive. I refer to it as expulsive because Scripture says it is unapproachable light. This is the trait of God that renders Him unapproachable by sinful men. Not only may we not approach God, but we are not able. It doesn't say we can't or we aren't allowed, we aren't. It says it's unapproachable, unable to be approached. We are not able. And when any man professes to have died and gone into heaven and entered into the unmediated presence of Almighty God, I assume that man knows not the Scriptures or the power of God. That man is an utter fool if he says he's been in the presence of God and he's come to tell about it. He is in his sin. He doesn't know God. Because the Scriptures, as we will see, testify unanimously to this fact that when a fraction, a fractional measure of the glory and the majesty of God is presented to man in, in any form, they become immediately aware of their creatureliness and they become abased they become overwhelmed and overpowered they become fraught with terror and with dread they become absolutely humiliated literally mortified they don't think they don't contemplate. They don't reason within themselves. It's like a gag reflex. They are repulsed, and they desire nothing more than to be away from the presence of God, but they're paralyzed in fear. And so all they can do is fall to the ground or hide or, or just request that they might be removed from His presence. In the case of evil men, someday they will beg for the rocks to fall on them crushing them just to get them away from that. 
whatever it takes. And I was reading Spurgeon this morning on Psalm 28, and he said, while the evil men will call on the rocks to fall on them, the godly will stand upon the rock of ages. It is expulsive to the creature, this majestic holiness, not just because he's sinful, but because he exists. In other words, whenever men become aware of this, they are immediately aware, aware that they have no business being. It is repulsive. It, it pushes away. It is the expulsive nature of the absolute, unmixed glory of God. We might say that this light, this shining forth, this luster emanation, the psalmist used the word splendor, this is the radiation of the infinite perfections of God. All of the incomprehensible traits of God that are God Himself, they come together and it, it shines forth. And so God is wrapped in or, or dwells in or finds as His holy habitation the very manifestation of Himself in all of His beauty, which is described as an effulgent, radiating, white-hot, terrifying light. Now, another term for this idea, the unapproachable, blazing radiance of God's perfection, is the glory of God. God's glory is the external manifestation of His inherent majesty as God. Now, in the Scriptures, that term glory carries the idea of, of weightiness and value. In other words, there's pressure on the scale and force that conveys the value of something. It also carries the idea of showing forth beauty. In 1 Corinthians 11, a woman's hair is her glory. It shows her beauty. And so this unapproachable light is the unmixed, unmitigated radiance of the beauty of all of God's perfections. It is His absolute Godness shining forth. His glory as God. Absolute, unmixed. No man's ever seen or can see the absolute, unmixed glory of God. Here Paul is describing it, but he's never seen it. And sometimes this absolute, unmixed glory of God is manifested to the creatures. A little. You see, because God is perfect, and all of His perfections are perfect, they can't remain in the atmosphere of the theoretical, in the mind, or the thought, or merely the, the abstract. They are His person. And a person is not a thought. A person is a person. And so they must, of necessity, proceed outward in some manifestation. And so... From time to time, God allows men to experience a fragment of this external manifestation of Himself. And when the Scriptures make the effort to describe what this manifestation of God's glory looks like and the impression given by that external manifestation of His glory, one of the phrases that it uses is unapproachable light. Sometimes it's smoke or, or a cloud or a fire, a consuming fire, but here, unapproachable light. Now, there are several ways that we might 
be able to begin to conceive of this concept. We, right now, we all have images in our mind. We're all picturing this light, and, and we still have trouble imagining that light, which is an intangible thing, would be so powerful that it repulses. It's light that repulses, but we understand the idea of the intangible that causes an intrinsic, instinctive repulsiveness to our bodies. Imagine a, a putrid smell. You smell it and you're repulsed. It stops you in your tracks. Or the, the, a stomach-churning sight of something grotesque at the table and you say, I can't look. Stop. Don't, don't show me that. Or you walk out into the heat in the summertime that you weren't expecting and it just sort of knocks you off your feet. Now, nobody has to stop you and say, now listen, what just happened was this smell that you don't like went into your nasal passages and, and the, the senses, the, the, the nerves there picked up that sense and took it to your brain and your brain doesn't like it. And then after that you say, oh, shoo, and you get away. That's not what happens. Not with a stomach-churning sight, not with heat. Nobody has to explain to you what's happening in your body. You are just forced away. It, it repulses you. You want away. You want some kind of relief from whatever that thing is. That is expulsive power of something intangible. There are other ways that we might begin to understand this unapproachable light. Now I'll begin by way of comparison. And we'll just start with some surface level ideas. These are light, and the other worst use of the term light. These are, these are just things that came into my mind as I'm trying to comprehend this. God created and sustains our sun. Now our sun is a small star in our tiny galaxy of somewhere around 250 billion other stars. Our sun is 109 times the size of the earth. Its density is somewhere around 330,000 times the earth. The surface of the sun is 10,340 degrees Fahrenheit. That's hot. That's one of those numbers I say to you, and it, it doesn't matter. Well, I could say, you know, anything. It doesn't matter. We can't comprehend it. 10,000 degrees. And God lends to it its light, while at the same time lending light to every other of the billions and billions of bigger stars throughout the universe. 10,340 degrees. Now, a bolt of lightning is 53,840 degrees in a split second. 53,000 degrees. A bolt of lightning is somewhere around 10 billion watts of electricity. Now, that's impressive. 10 billion watts. These bulbs are 75 watts, and we have 10 of them, so that would be 750 watts. A bolt of lightning is 10 billion watts. Now, if we wanted to see what 750 watts looked like concentrated, now see, y'all can see that little bitty bulb. That's a tiny. Can you see that? 
a very small bulb. That's 750 watts concentrated. Now, how much closer do you want to be? You can come up here. It's hot. I mean, it will burn you. That's hot. When I turn it off, I'm going to have to let that thing cool down. 750 watts, and you don't want to get close to it. God stores and sends forth the lightning as He wishes. Now, how close would you like to be to a bolt of lightning? And that's just a little nothing to Him. He, he stores it. You, go out. Now come back. Back in the storehouse. Now these things sort of give us that a little bit of a physical conception by way of comparison. I don't want to be any closer to the sun. I don't want to be any closer to a bolt of lightning. I don't want to be close to that light bulb or touch it because it will it'll burn you. But this unapproachable light is not merely a physical reality. It's not just something that's a physical light that you just can't get to because it's hot. It's, it's a spiritual thing. It produces or invokes a temperament of the soul. It produces a sense of self-awareness that drives your very essence to feelings of what Otto calls grisly horror and shuddering. It's as if that, that dreadful brooding darkness of Abram's nap were sort of mixed with the, the limp limbs and the knocking knees of Belshazzar when he saw the writing on the wall. You just you don't know what to do. It just it, it, it overtakes you. Another way that we might begin to understand the manifestation of God's unapproachable, majestic holiness is to experience it yourself. Again, this is a truth that can't be taught. I can't I could stay I could stand up here all night and just explain. You can't, you won't know it. It must be experienced. Now, you can, like Moses, ask to behold the glory of God. I don't think you're going to see anything. But I do think that from time to time, God can and does allow some of His people to experience a special manifestation of His glory and His majesty. Now, if I quoted from Otto what he described has happened historically when men experience this glory, you would think I had lost my mind, and so I won't. But when this majestic holiness is experienced, it often leads to what he calls being rapt in worship, R-A-P-T, like raptured in worship. Again, there's this feeling of self-abasement, nothingness, immediate nothingness. When you have communed with God aright, and he is pleased to manifest his presence, most often the initial reactionary response of the soul is repulsion. Get me out of here. Now, after that, there may follow the felt sense of the love of God in Christ, the nearness of God by his Spirit, but most often it doesn't start there. To quote Otto again, he says, He only who is in the Spirit knows and feels what profaneness is. But to such an one it comes with piercing acuteness and is accompanied by the most uncompromising judgment of self-depreciation, a judgment passed not upon his character because of individual profane actions of his, but upon his very existence as a creature before God who is supreme above all creatures. Again, you just immediately realize, I shouldn't be. I shouldn't be here. 
so you might experience it yourself. And that's why I said I hope to stir at least your affections to not seek after ecstatic experiences, but to pray for a deeper, a deeper communion with God at least. Well, you could also read of experiences. I think this is the most readily available and most common means by which the people of God understand this majestic holiness. We read about the experience of others. Church history provides us with stories of men who have experienced the majestic holiness of God. The Scriptures themselves also tell us of how men have reacted. And when we read of how the men of Scripture reacted, that helps us to better understand what this was like. And so I'll read these passages of Scripture. In Genesis 3, verses 8 through 10, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. So how did Adam respond? He was afraid, and he hid from the presence of the Lord. In Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6, we read of the account of Moses with the burning bush, and God speaks and says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Another one, which we referenced in part last week from Isaiah chapter 6, I'll read the full account. This is something you could read every day. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, here's Isaiah's response to the majestic holiness of God, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, up until that point, Isaiah probably could look around at the people that he was living in the midst of, and he probably thought, you know what? Compared to all these people, I'm doing pretty good. These are wicked and vile people. And then when he sees the king, the Lord of hosts, he says, I'm just like them. I'm no better. I'm no better. In Ezekiel chapter 1, Verse 28, remember several weeks ago I read that scene of Ezekiel when he saw the glory of God. In the end of that section it says, Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. Ezekiel chapter 3 and verse 23. 
So I arose and went out into the valley, and behold, the glory of the Lord stood there, like the glory that I had seen by the Kibar Canal. And I fell on my face. Ezekiel didn't say, oh, you again. I fell on my face. Ezekiel never got over it. Ezekiel chapter 43, verses 2 and 3. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of His coming was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with His glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision I had seen when He came to destroy the city. And just like the vision that I had seen by the Kibar Canal. And I fell on my face. Ezekiel 44, verse 4. Then he brought me by way of the north gate to the front of the temple. And I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and I fell on my face every time. He doesn't say, well, you're not going to get me this time. I'm ready now. I've seen this before. Every single time he falls on his face. In Luke chapter 5 and verse 8, Jesus performs the miracle where he, the, the, the men are dragging in these nets full of fish after having fished and caught nothing. It says, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Get away from me. You, we can't be in the boat together. In Luke chapter 8 and verse 37, Jesus has just performed a great miracle, cast out the demons from the demoniac into the herd of the pigs, and then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. They weren't afraid of the demoniac. They were afraid of the man who made the demons leave the demoniac. And they said, you've got to go. In Mark chapter 4, verses 39 to 41, and he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? So think about it. They were in this storm. They thought they were going to die. Go get Jesus. Wake him up. The storm goes away, and then they're filled with fear because of what they just saw him do. And then in Revelation chapter 1, the end of verse 16 through verse 17, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Not long before that, he had laid his head on his breast. He had been the disciple whom Jesus loved. And here he sees him, and he falls down as if he were dead when he sees the glory of the risen Lord. So we can think by way of comparison, really big lights, really powerful lights that propel and, and repulse us. We can hope to experience that ourselves and, and seek seek after a deeper communion with God. We can read of the examples and the stories of other men who have experienced this and, and meditating on passages like this. When I printed all this off, 
I went back and I, I made a copy of it and I just cut out everything except for their responses. Woe is me. I fell on my face. 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 Depart from me. Seize with great fear. Filled with great fear. I fell at his feet as though dead. And, and, and we ask ourselves, have I ever met God if I don't respond like that? Why do they respond that way and I don't respond that way? And it will, it will, again, at least, hopefully, stir you to pursue the Lord. But there's one more means by which we might understand this idea. One more. Remember, the majesty of God is all of His greatness, all of His bigness, all of His honor, dignity, royalty, grandeur, power, nobility, regality, all of that shines forth as His majesty. God is wrapped up in the very manifestation of Himself and all of His beauty. And this beauty and this majesty is described as effulgent, radiating, white, hot, terrifying light. We might could say that this was the radiance of the glory of God. The unapproachable, blazing radiance of God's perfection. God's glory is the external manifestation of His inherent majesty as God. We might say it is the fullness of God in visible expression. We might could also say it would be the image of the invisible God. Now then, when we put all these ideas together, we would ask, where is it that we see the radiance of the glory of God. Where, where do we go to see the fullness of the Godhead in visible expression? Where can we see the glory of God shining? Do we try to look at the veiled face of Moses or something to that effect? No. Listen to what Paul says. Here he speaks of Moses and the law. He says, For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For, what if, for if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Yes, he says, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their eyes, but when one turns to the Lord, that veil is removed. Next chapter, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the full, perfect effulgence of the glory of God wrapped in human flesh. All of, that, all of that glory of all of God's perfection, I said, stands forth as another person. It must show forth. It can't just remain in the conception and the contemplation of God. It has to come out. And when that coming out takes on flesh... He tabernacles among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And we behold Christ 
by faith. And this is what we need to understand. Because the, the charismatics will say one thing and, and other mystics will say other things. And we'll read the scriptures and we'll see one thing and the other. This is what we have to understand. When we behold Christ by faith... The God-man. We are beholding the glory of God greater than any light or vision Moses ever saw. Greater than anything Ezekiel ever saw. We are seeing the full manifestation of God. Now, they, were, they, were, they couldn't see. Or they saw Moses had his face veiled. And then Paul says, we see as in a glass dimly right now, but we can see... But then someday we will see glass gone, veil gone, the fullness of the glory of God. And, and, and this is what we're going to see. We're going to walk into the presence of the full effulgence of the glory of God and we're going to see a man named Jesus of Nazareth. We're going to look at a Jewish man and there will be the fullness of the glory of God, the God-man. And so we long for that day. We long for that perfect vision. But now we do behold by faith as the Scriptures give us opportunity. So then how might we apply these things? I just got three points. First, I believe this should be the root of and should influence the attitude of our worship. The attitude of our worship. How should we think about worship, coming before God as a congregation, if this is who He is? Should it be a light thing? Should it be a silly thing? Should it be an expendable thing? Should it be a, a throwaway opportunity? Should it be something that we might make it to, but we might not? How should we think about the worship of God? Some would say, well, that's... That, that was God then, but now we worship through Christ, and so things have changed. We read from Exodus, the appearance of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain, and we say, well, it's different now. You're right, it is different. The language now is our God is a consuming fire. The language is a little different from Exodus 12, but He has not changed. When we come to worship, do we fear God? Do we come with an attitude of apprehensiveness? Do we reverence the time? If this is who He is, dwelling in unapproachable light, I would assume we had better reverence the time. Consider how we come. If you want to read a story in the Scriptures of a couple of guys who thought they might worship without reverencing, you can go to Leviticus chapter 10. The glory of God consumed them, burned them alive. So I think this should affect the attitude of our worship. Secondly, I think this should also have a, a, an effect on the way we think of the means of our worship. When we think of all this, hopefully, from time to time, we are terrified. But we, it should also arouse in us a conscious awareness that apart from Christ, God is unapproachable, and a constant remembrance that in Christ, we're invited to come into His presence. It is unapproachable. And, and he says, come, in Christ. Again, the, the consuming fire has put on flesh and dwelt among us. So we, we have 
this union with Christ by which we're invited into the presence of God, but that doesn't change the attitude of our worship. And thirdly, I think this should affect the demeanor of our lives. The demeanor of just everywhere else when we're not in church. How should we think? How should we act? How dare we imagine that somehow we're going to live our, le our lives before the face of God every day and at the same time possess some form of arrogance? Again, we're accused of arrogance all the time when we act like we believe the truth or, or know the truth. You're going to be confused or, or, or accused of arrogance, but in our hearts... There should never be any arrogance. We should never imagine that unlike Adam, Moses, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Peter, and John, that we are somehow more acquainted with God and God is somehow more approachable to us than He was to them. He's the same God, and so we should live before His face with that in mind. God is the consuming fire. God dwells in unapproachable light. If we were to come into the absolute, unmixed manifestation of His glory, we would melt. Isaiah says in Isaiah 57, 15, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is, and this is not an adjective, this is the title, whose name is Holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Contrite and lowly spirit. Pray that God gives a contrite and lowly spirit. This is the one to whom I will look. Isaiah 66, 2. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. As a people, as a nation, as whatever else there might be, as a race, we have lost the fear of God because we've lost the knowledge of God. We don't know Him and so we're not afraid of Him. When you get to know Him, you learn how to be afraid of Him and you humble yourself. Take the time to meditate on the majestic holiness of God, His wondrous glory which no man can approach unto, and ask yourself, what is it about this God and myself that has fashioned this great chasm between us? There, there's where you're going to learn about who God is and who you are. Consider these texts from Isaiah and ask the Lord, teach me to live this way, humble and contrite, lowly and contrite, before all men and before the face of God. Let's pray. Father, we, we praise you and we thank you that you would give us revelation of who you are and describe it to us in human language even though we can't fully experience it or understand it. Lord, teach us of your holiness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's uh, stand and we'll sing.
another song together.